0: Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Olivier Higgins.
1: And my name is Salata Johan.
0: Today we're speaking with Professor Gareth Stedman Jones. Gareth Stedman Jones is a professor of the history of ideas at Queen Mary University and a history fellow at King's College, Cambridge. After fellowships in Oxford and Frankfurt, he spent much of his teaching career in Cambridge, where he became professor of political science in 1997. His work has covered a range of topics in economic and political history between the 18th and 20th centuries, with a special focus on 19th century Britain and Europe. Stedman Jones is the author of many books and articles, from his first monograph, Outcast London, published in 1971, to his 2016 biography of Karl Marx, Karl Marx's Greatness and Illusion. We much look forward to discussing this work with him today. Gareth, thank you for
2: joining us. Thank you.
1: We usually begin by asking our guests about how they came to study intellectual history. But in your case, that's likely a complex and far reaching story. So we want to start by asking you about the three books that you think had the greatest influence on your intellectual trajectory.
2: Uh, Right, well, it's important for me to say that um, uh, my interests started at school, and they started both in history and in French. Um, The three books I would mention, um, although they're slightly arbitrary at this stage, (laughs) it's a long time ago, um, Christopher Hill, Essays on Puritanism and Revolution, Dickens, Bleak House, uh, and Sondale, The Red and the Black. The books which really interested me then in history were mainly 16th, 17th century, um, and uh, Christopher Hill was put, um, I, I got into at an early stage when I was at school, um, and I followed up really from what uh, I had read with him. Um, the second. Um, second choice I made, which was Dickens, is really to explain why I got particularly interested in the 19th century rather than any other, because I just found uh, reading Dickens um, uh, overwhelming, um, but also the creation of a whole world, which um, it became my own ambition, as it were, to, to map out, not like Dickens, of course, but as a historian, I didn't want to exclude any area Um, and and Dickens is a very good example of that sort of panorama which you get uh, in the 19th century. Stendhal, um, because I was very interested in the aftermath of the French Revolution, I was interested in the ambition of young people in the aftermath of uh, a revolution, and his, you know, this... um, foolish ambition the 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 hero of the novel has you know to make a mark and this sort of thing I rather uh, it rather appealed to me at the time uh, but also Stondahl is a wonderful writer so I wanted to explain that my interest in history was not simply uh, through reading some standard works of history but uh, what this does for the historical imagination.
1: Mm-hmm. During your studies at Oxford, you became a member of the editorial board of the New Left Review. You met and worked with a new generation of historians that we now associate with uh, social history and history from below, like Christopher Hill, E.P. Thompson, Eric Hobsbawm and Raphael Samuel. Can you tell us about the status of ideas in their approaches to history and how you yourself perceived it at the time?
2: Um, well, I should make clear that I wasn't interested in social history. Um, at the time, it was called socialist history, and that was to mark our political identity, and it wasn't to say what sort of history was going to interest us. Um, so I've always kept, my, kept myself distant from the idea of social history. Uh, and uh, I'm also, I was also uninterested, although sympathetic, to the idea of history from below. Um, as far as I was concerned, history is, is is written from all angles, not just from below, which makes little sense. Um, I would mainly interested, in, I should also add, in French writings. My sources of inspiration at the time were much more uh, in France. Um, in my gap year, I left England and went to Paris, where I worked in the press for a little bit, Agence France Press, uh, and the things I was reading were Sartre, de Beauvoir, Camus, the Annal School, Lefebvre, and so on. Um, as, as for the people you mentioned, I was a great admirer of Eric Hobsbawm, um, and what I've come to think th- since is that I found him very convincing, not least because what he was doing was really uh, using um, a supposed mask of Marx to actually reproduce um, Uh, a natural law conception of historical progress and to fit um, uh, events and so on into that. Uh, So he he appealed to me from the beginning. As far as Edward Thompson was concerned, I was a friend of his at the time, uh, but I didn't share his approach to history. Um, And um, as far as Raphael Samuel was concerned, uh, I became a close friend and remained a close friend. We, we spent large amounts of time discussing history and so on. Whether he influenced me or I influenced him, I mean, that's a question I can't give a very coherent answer to. But um, he, was, he was inspirational, perhaps, because he just thought history was so important. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, do you think that there is something um, that unites these um, historians or authors and you know, if if you think that's the case, what would that be? Or do you think they are, in fact, very separate figures who each had their own project, um, historiographical project that they pursued?
2: Well, it obviously came out of the history of the left in England, mm-hmm. um, and all these historians had been members of the Communist his, Historians Group, um, and they struck out in sort of new directions after 1956 um and that's it's out of that that the sort of idea of social history as they conceived it emerged um i mean i thought some of their work was extremely good you know um uh, and um and the other thing was of course a lot of them were very closely tied in with the new left and new left review in particular um and uh, when i joined new left review which was in the Uh, when I was, I think, still an undergraduate, I felt myself between um, the old... and There was a a battle going on, which is now of very antique interest, between the old New Left Review and the new New Left Review, between a sort of Edward Thompson-type approach and a Perry Anderson-type approach. Um, And I sort of more or less tried to keep a a place in in the middle, Um, not very successfully, but that was... Uh, important in terms of um, the sort of historians I was in in conversation with. Mm.
1: To follow up on that, you acknowledge in your two thousand thirteen preface of Outcast London that the book is reflective of a movement that, and I quote, aimed not only to broaden the scope of history but also to question the form and content of its inherited narratives. Could you unpack that shift for us?
2: Well, um, uh, my own slogan um, was taken from Hegel mm-hmm. and is that the truth is the whole. <laughs> and so what I'm interested in is, uh, as was Dickens, I mean, between the, the heights and the depths, um, you know, the panorama um, and, uh, and thought as much as, as activity, um, And uh, so if you look at Outcast London, you'll find, yes, there's quite a bit on working-class behaviour, but there's also quite a bit on on what liberals were thinking and doing. Um, It was as much an exercise in contextualising political thought as it was um, uh, in sort of doing labour history or something. Um, I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but that's what it was. Um, I began my Uh, My my main historical interest in in writing that book was in popular liberalism and its flaws. Um, I began my PhD as a dissertation on self-help, which was a a prime mid-Victorian slogan uh, of an age of improvement. But what was really interesting and what really got me going was when I started looking at um, self-help, um, then I kept finding that the other of self-help was, as it were, the casual labourer of of London, the, the undeserving poor. These weren't the sort of progressing industrial working classes of, of the North. These were the people who were just thought to be an perhaps unredeemable problem or something which had to be treated, you know, in, in a sort of almost medicinal way, a charitable charity and the various... Philosophies of charity at the time to apply to them to create improvement. So that was the scenario. But what was wonderful, I mean, just talking in a sort of qua um, historian, was to find that um, absolutely goldmine of sources. I mean, you've got all the Mayhew discussions of. Um, these oral history encounters with people on the London streets and then you've got 17 volumes of Charles Booth later on in his inquiry about the conditions of the, of the London uh, working classes and poor and so on and you've got all the royal commissions in between and then you've got wonderful novels and God knows what so I, in a way I felt I couldn't go wrong <laughs> uh, taking this as a theme because precisely it was something which was not being studied at the time, you know the um, the main interest at the time was uh, industrial revolution, the um, uh, the working classes of the north, um, labour history of of, of, of um, a, a more conventional kind, um, and modern industry and industrialization. and all these things were very problematic when applied to London. So um, it seemed to me that I discovered a gold mine when I came across all this, mm. and my main aim otherwise was to uh, well, was to write a new sort of history, if I could, um, questioning, as it were, um, a straightforward, almost Whig history of the development of treatments of poly- poverty, um, which were all very well done in their own way by pe- people like Beatrice Webb and the history of the poor law and this sort of thing, um, and wanting to show what didn't fit in to um, conventional schemes about either the origins and development of the welfare state or, or of um, uh, labor or whatever it might be. Um, and also, I, want, I was, this is probably something where Raphael Samuel came in, uh, I, I was quite um, disdainful, I suppose, of the, um, this idea of Octavia Hill of visiting the poor and um, you know improving them, um, and this sort of sense of lady visitors setting uh, an example to these people. I've, uh, Raphael and I used to joke about this and um, send mock letters um, between each other about you know how to improve manners and and behaviour. So uh, there was an element, as I say, of of um, uh, puncturing. Uh, some of the pretensions of conventional histories of the, pre- the development of the welfare state in that, that period.
1: Mm-hmm. So what would you say is the the main way in which mm, your story questions a weak history of, of the welfare state? What was it that um, counteracted the kind of notion of historical progress that that entails?
2: Well, one of the ideas which I was sort of um, tacitly challenging was this sort of Edward Thompson idea of the making of the working class. And I really wanted to show what the the real nature of the problems were. I didn't really have any strong sense of, you know, a heroic role being played by the working class at this period. Um, And I was more interested in the history of policy, Um, but also just in a Dickensian sense, the actual description of what people did, what they thought, um, uh, without any sense of whether they were developing towards some sort of class consciousness or not and so on. The aim, as I say, was to challenge the idea that what 19th century history was about, particularly from a sort of labour or social point of view, was the development of um, trade unions, cooperation, parties and so on, And to show that large chunks of um, the population, particularly the urban population, um, occupied this role of casual labour, it just ended up, fortunately, but in a very strange way, with the First World War, because a lot of the problems which charity reformers and liberals thought was an an attitudinal problem on the part of um, these casual workers and so on, Was simply lack of decent. Was simply that they were in the equivalent of a gig economy at the time, um, and there was little (laughs) incentive to feel much identification with work. And one of the reversals in the First World War was there suddenly was a huge labour shortage, and all these people got absorbed. And in that way, uh, the casual labour problem, as I studied it in the second half of the nineteenth century. Temporarily, disappear.
1: Your second book, Languages of Class, that appeared 12 years after Outcast London, adopts a somewhat different tone. You seem to be conscious of a shift in the context surrounding Marxist politics and historiography. In your introduction, you argue that, and I quote, in the new historical epoch which we appear to have entered, a whole set of conventional beliefs about working-class politics have been put into doubt. Can you say a bit more about this transformation and its bearing on your work?
2: Yes, Languages of Class was um, a collection of essays and they're written at different times. So part of what the introduction did was to uh, try to explain why I, I had moved from one set of assumptions to another. And one of the basic assumptions which... I critically came to question was this assumption uh, of the historians mentioned earlier, the, the Thompson, Hobsbawm, Hill, etc., of social determination. Um, and what I wanted to replace it in a more explicit sense than I had before, because I hadn't even thought it through before, was uh, that um, class was a language, uh, that it was, um, and that the Approach to the history of class must be a discursive approach. And in that sense, there was no essential relationship between a language and a a set of social positions. Um, That was to be explained more by politics. Um, And um, I applied some of these attitudes, some of these positions to uh, various questions. This making the working class thing was um, overlaid in the... Second half of the nineteenth century by what I called, ironically, the remaking of the working class, which was to create a much more conservative um, image of what working class culture was about. So again, it was meant it was a sort of um, challenge to heroic labor history and this sort of thing. Um, I also wanted to, as it were, replace ideas of class consciousness by by these ideas of language. But it was basically trying to get away from the idea of um, social determination, but at the same time to avoid going in the other extreme um, and uh, adopting a sort of Foucauldian uh, position. I always, uh, I, I found um, Foucault from the beginning fairly inimical, um, and tried to um, show that discourse doesn't have to mean a Foucauldian approach to. To social or political tensions, uh, and that also the diachronic can still have a meaning, which again he tried to flatten. And I believe that Foucault is still very dominant in terms of popular historical understanding, but anyway, that's my position.
0: So, turning to An End to Poverty, which finds our modern conceptions of poverty in the late 18th century, uh, you begin the book by stating that it will employ history to illuminate questions of policy and politics still have resonance, Um, which is a statement, at least to our ears, that sounds fairly applicable to some of your other works as well. And we're wondering if you could say more about the place of contemporary politics in choosing your projects or writing on specific debates and thinkers rather than others.
2: Well, specifically what I was um, concerned about at the time was the way in which a sort of neoconservative approach or neoliberal approach had um, taken over think tank discussion about um, commercial society about um, and to posit Adam Smith as a sort of neoliberal and so part of what I wanted to show was that Smith was part of a a radical discourse as well in the 1780s and 90s and that um, it was part of the um, counter-revolution counter-revolutionary climate which then sort of allied Smith and Burke as if they were saying the same thing about franchise and and improvement of the working classes and everything else. So uh, I wanted to, as it were, disaggregate um, what a new form of conservatism was putting together in the form of a legitimation of uh, a certain form of neoliberal society. Um, So that was... One of the original, as it were, impetus uh, inspirations of the book, and that's what I was trying to address, in uh, showing that the, well, in showing that there's a, a more, much more radical way in which you can look at this, this the idea that poverty is avoidable, or can be, um, prevented or um, overcome, is something you don't really find until the 1790s. So I wanted to highlight that there was a high moment, which then, of course, a large amount of, of scepticism and conservatism tried to combat, in particular, of course, not only Burke but also Malthus and the way in which those um, theories came to dominate the 19th century and were always, as it were, used to apply the brake on any, any sort of wild expectations about what improvement might be possible. Um, on the more general point, I mean... Yes, I do think history is or ought to be politically relevant, and a number of the questions or questions which um, one takes up are questions which, because they're already being thought about in different contexts, uh, where history can actually illuminate, clarify or correct you know current perceptions, that seems to me an important task a historian has. So, leading
0: into the 19th century now, we've talked in the past on this podcast about the particularities of the 19th century for intellectual historians, specifically on questions of technology and democracy. You mentioned that you came at the 19th century through your early readings of Dickens. Could you say more about the intellectual uniqueness of this century
2: and why it features so prominently in your work? Yes, I mean, the answer could go on for hours, but... (laughs) Um, I just got a few thoughts which I'll, I'll tell you. Um, first of all, because it's the period in which the aspirations of the Enlightenment, um, you can see whether they're being fulfilled or not fulfilled, how they're being corrected in the light of experience. And of course, given the French Revolution, um, you know, it's a huge um, problem for people who think that improvement is going to happen as Enlightenment people thought. But also, of course, uh, looking at a new conception of um, popular sovereignty, which emerges with the French Revolution. Um, perhaps to say that, in um, the context of the debate we're having to listen to now, is that one of the um, optimistic things, if you look at Tom Tom Paine and various others, um, or Condorcet or so on in the period, is the discovery of what they, or they thought of it as a re- discovery of representative government. Democratic representative government, not, you know, the people have spoken sort of stuff. I mean, that was obviously one of the things that the French Revolution explored uh, with, you know, dire results. And um, so I'm interested in those debates about once you get the actual occurrence of a revolution, the popular revolution, and what happens to it, and the endless debate which, which then follows it, obviously, about what that meant in terms of what was possible in terms of democracy and uh, also Republican hopes, you know. Um, so that, that's one of the great interests. The o- others I should just mention is obviously, you know, the whole uh, way, unimaginable way in which um, uh, improvement occurred as a result of industrialization, not just improvement in terms of technology, uh, but also life expectancy. Um, so different questions about health and environment, you know, by the middle of the nineteenth century than there had been at the beginning. In terms of intellectual history and political thought, I'm very interested in the way in which, from thinking about um, thinking about uh, the world, human populations, the rest of it, uh, and the universe, uh, from a sort of physics-based um, Newtonian point of view, how in the 19th century it becomes a life science-based um, view, and life sciences means that um, whether persons or civilizations have a beginning, a development, and an end. So this sort of idea of organic development becomes very dominant. It's one of the um, uh, positions which... Um, Develops, of course, in, in Marx and so on. This whole attempt to apply that that model, and also, of course, it it, it comes to a culmination with Darwin and and um, you know, in the sense of uh, the idea, the whole world is about physical development, mm-hmm. biological development, and so on. Um, so that's all very exciting from an intellectual point of view, intellectual history point of view, I should say. Uh, and then, of course, the ways in which the whole Nasty development of modern slavery from the early modern period, you know, gets real criticism and a decisive challenge, of course, in the American Civil War. That's another area which I think was one of the reasons for mid-to-late Victorian optimism about human improvement. So I'm interested in that, and the other thing, of course, again, um, very important, is the development of of state-based education and the fact that you know literacy becomes a more universal aspect than it had been before. So all these things, and I'm sure I could mention you know 200 others, um, are reasons why I think the 19th century is a very exciting period, even though I, I, I sense that at the moment it's not a very fashionable period to be studying. But that seems, I'm sure that will come <laughs> back again.
1: We'll bring it back. We're we're doing doing (laughs) our best. We're doing our best.
0: So on that that topic, um, a lot of your writings on the 19th century seem to have found uh, academic and general, more general audiences alike. Uh, In 2016, your intellectual biography of Karl Marx was published with Penguin. And we're curious about the particular readership you had in mind for this book and um, how, given
2: these intentions, you think it was received. Um well, it's an interesting question um I mean obviously the target i suppose which is just a cliche is the educated layperson <laughs> who you know would um read this out of curiosity out of um uh, political or intellectual or philosophical concern um and obviously part of the aim would be to sort of um um put right misconceptions and the rest of it um As to what the effect was, um, I'm, well, I think, I don't know, uh, would be one way of putting it. I I somehow feel that um, interest in history has, has, um, or the sort of history that I do anyway, is not as it once was, Um, that, you know, questions of identity are intellectually um, suffocating as far as I'm concerned interested in it um and so the idea of, of development of um ambiguities and so on all these seem to be evacuated from current political discussion i mean a good example would be the current discussions in the Labour party if there are any i mean it doesn't seem to be based on any um proper um historical or philosophical or political philosophical foundation I mean it seems to be very much um, instant reaction and this sort of thing I may be wrong I mean I don't I don't pretend to know uh, what's happening Um, but my sense is that um, it's very different from the sort of things I would have been engaged in um, you know 30 or 40 years ago uh, in terms of what we what we wanted to find out and what we wanted to discuss i hope i'm wrong i mean i hope th- the book will make an impact you know um and it's very hard to say because you know yes i got some very nice reviews and all that sort of thing and um it has got a number of uh, it's been translated into a number of different languages what's interesting there is um how things have changed i mean uh, there's a lot of interest in germany um, and the Netherlands um, great interest in Spain where they sort of um, interviewed me on national radio and god knows what no interest at all in Italy um, which is sort of strange given that how Italy used to be um, and um, presumably has something to do with the political situation there but it's very interesting The oh and there's you know, good good extent of interest in the United States and Canada, I'd say. So um, I'm not at all unhappy, but I am slightly confused as to what sort of impact the book has made, if any.
0: And just um, a question about your, again, your approaching, sort of gathering all these threads together in writing the biography. um, You likened your objectives as a biographer to those of an art restorer, of restoring our image of Marx to its original state. And um, that caught our eye because the analogy might be especially poignant with Marx, but uh, would you ever extend this restorative role to your other writings on figures like Condorcet or Paine or more broadly uh, to the work of intellectual historians?
2: Is it all uh, a matter of restoration in a way? Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's not something which I'd simply reserve for treatment of Marx. (laughs) Um, But I'd also say that um, perhaps just to uh qualify that a bit that of course the book um puts a lot of emphasis on contextualization right um that i treat marx's writings as the interventions of an author within a particular political and philosophical context and that that's what the historian has to reconstruct but i also want to talk about decontextualization that's to say the historian is also an author um, working in a very different context. As such, I'm also interested and concerned about which of Marx's ideas still have contemporary meaning or have acquired new meaning today in ways in which he could not have possibly foreseen. I would therefore like to highlight those insights of enduring importance and suggestiveness, um, even his mistakes and so on. So. Um, I wanted to point out I'm not just stuck in context because that would be um, very narrowing. And why bother, you know, if everyone was simply a prisoner of the context in which they lived and thought? Uh, Marx was the first to chart, I think, the creation and transformation in less than a century of the world market. He said the bourgeoisie accomplished wonders surpassing Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedrals. In 100 years, it has created more massive... And colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. And also, I think he captures some of the enduring and important things about capitalism, i.e., the endless invention of new needs, Um, its subversion of all inherited cultural practices and beliefs, and its disregard of hierarchies and boundaries. Um, So I think these. Again, I mean, they sound obvious, but I mean, they weren't being said at the time. Um, Second thing I think which is um, important is that capitalism created as well as destroying that unlike slavery or feudalism or other modes of production, capitalism is not the product of conquest, that it's not embodied in a particular class. Attitudes towards it were ambiguous since it was based on a free contract even if it resulted in capital accumulation and new forms of inequality. Despite its exploitative features, it was compatible with the growing, increasing prosperity of producers, depending on economic circumstance, as histories of 19th and 20th century at least show. Um, Also, um, the crucial thing is that it develops out of religious criticism. What's distinctive about Marx is the idea that the critique that Feuerbach had applied to God, he applied to other entities, like you know, commercial society or whatever it might be. Um, and so that idea of, of um, what Feuerbach does, which is to transfer subject and object, to switch subject and object, so that man becomes the victim of various processes rather than uh, the agent responsible for various processes. These are things which I think remain an important and usable insight. Um, I mean, it could be applied not just to God, but neoliberalism, patriarchy, climate change, economic determinism. Um, in all these cases, you could say subject and object are being switched. Mm. Um, and I think this is, remains um, a general and usable insight and something which Marx should be recognized as being responsible for. So as always we would like to end by asking you uh, what you're working on. Is there anything
0: you can tell us about uh, your current projects? Uh,
2: well I'm just getting to the end of you know I've been invited to a lot of places to talk about the Marx book and so on. I am now I hope and I hope after Christmas we'll begin to do uh, embark on a new project what I want to look at is in particular to start with is the work of George Eliot. George Eliot was the translator of Strauss and then of Feuerbach and then that very much affected her own writings and so on. George Eliot has on the whole of course been studied by English people and you know the German side has been you know, uh, not ignored but sort of downplayed. I think something more interesting could be produced from that. But it probably needs um, a larger sort of um, comparative approach to make the thing work. And so obviously the young Hegelians reading Strauss and Feuerbach is different from George Eliot reading Strauss and Feuerbach. So I'm, I'm very interested in how those things uh, differ. So uh, to look at this whole period, which you know starts with various initial critiques, Strauss being one of them, and goes through to Nietzsche and, and, and then the Darwinist discussion in the 1860s, 70s. This is the area which I want to explore next.
0: Great. Well, sounds fascinating. And uh, thank you very much for a very enlightening conversation.
2: Well, thank you for asking me.
1: <laughs> We've come to the end of another episode of Interventions. Thank you for listening interventions is currently making some changes that affect our availability online we are no longer available on soundcloud but you can find us now on anchor under anchor.fm slash the ih podcast and a range of other platforms a list of which you can also find on our anchor website if you listen to interventions on itunes please rate and review us it would help out a lot We'll be back with a new series of exciting episodes, and we'll see you soon. Bye.